Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, the show dedicated to helping high six and seven figure entrepreneurs build amazing online companies and incredible lives. I'm your host and fellow e-commerce entrepreneur, Andrew Uderi. Hey guys, it's Andrew here. Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And today we're going to be continuing a discussion that Bill D'Alessandro and I, that we started last week, specifically talking about the massive world-shifting changes that are going to be headed your way in the coming years. And last week we talked about, specifically we talked about robots and artificial intelligence. We talked about widespread virtual reality. We talked about negative interest rates and an extremely low interest rate environment for the coming future. And that's where we left it off. So want to kind of dive in today is particularly about things that are going to be disappearing in the future that are going to have a big change on your life. So I'll go ahead and we'll pick it up right from where we left off last week. Enjoy. So moving into things that will be disappearing, the first one on here, and this is something this will be interesting, Bill, because we have different opinions on this, the two-party system. You and I were prepping and we were like, dude, we got to make sure that we do not turn this into just a political muck fest because I think you and I could go off for hours about what a nightmare elections and apologies to people outside the US. This will be a little US-centric, but most people would agree it's been a very unorthodox election campaign season. And I think this could be the final straw to break the two-party system, but you don't. And I'll let you maybe make the argument first. I would like you to make the argument first, and then I will rebut. Because oh. I think, well, because I have not heard your angle on this, so I would like to hear it. I think the two-party system in the U.S., of course, Democrats and Republicans, I feel like has been, it's kind of anachronism. You have, I think a lot of people our age, Bill, not just like, you know, late 20s, early 30s, but going out, you know, 10 plus years on both sides, you have a very large portion of the population that is far more centrist. People that are maybe economically conservative, but socially liberal. People that don't identify with the very extreme fringes of the Democratic and the Republican parties. And for a long time, I think traditionally the two party systems, they weren't quite as extreme. And so they, you know, maybe that largerist or kind of social norms were a little bit, you know, more divided. But I think that the parties historically haven't, weren't as extreme. And so people were able to relate to them more. But I think in the last 15, 10, 15 years, they've gotten so extreme on both sides. You have a lot of people that don't feel like they belong to any party at all. And I think this is the first election where you have just open rebellion in the Republican Party and to a much lesser degree in the Democratic Party. But with Trump, it's just you and I were both talking about this. We were trying to figure out who we're going to vote for. And it's maddening. We strongly, strongly dislike both candidates. And I've heard that from probably a dozen people who are you going to vote for? I'm going to vote, but I'm going to either, a lot of them say, I'm just going to give a throwaway vote because I want to vote, but I can't bring myself to vote for either one. And I see this as potentially being the straw that breaks the camel's back where you finally somehow have people say, this is crazy. Why is there just two choices? There's got to be a third party that's not as extreme and, and is more in the middle. So your argument is that because the two existing major parties have become so polarized, it is ripe for a centrist party to come, to rise. Yes, but as an extension, I'd also say because not just because of they're so polarized, if you had 40% of Democrats really strongly relating to the, the Democratic Party and 40% of, you know, the majority of Democrats and the majority of Republicans feeling like their parties and their party representatives really represented them well, then yeah, absolutely. I think it could continue on for a while. But I think you have so many people that say, I don't, I can't relate to either one of these parties. The parties are so extreme relative to their constituents. I think that's the problem. So I agree with you that, so my take on this argument is I'm firmly on the other side that 
the two-party system is not going away in the United States unless we have a dramatic reform of the way that we elect our leaders. I think it is much more likely, however, that we are seeing the near-term end of the traditional Democratic and Republican parties. You know, our kids might be voting for parties that are very different, with different names, with different leadership, that type of thing. But the argument is to follow as to why the two-party system is not never going away in America is because of the way our elections are structured. And this comes straight out of a political science class, if any of the listeners have ever taken one of these in college. So what we have in the United States is called a first-past-the-post election system, also known as winner-take-all. So if you get 50.1% of the votes, you're the president. You're the party in power. You win the seat in Congress, whatever it might be. And so as a result, in all countries or governments throughout history, whenever you have a first-past-the-post election system, then you end up with two parties. And the reason is, let's say, you know, in the next election, you know, some third party begins to rise to prominence and they get 10, 15, 20% of the electorate. Pretty soon, either the Republicans or the Democrats, one of the major parties in power starts to look at them and go, man, if we could compromise on a couple points, we might just be able to bring these 20% of voters into the fold and win the whole election. And so, over time, that third party, as soon as they become powerful enough, they tend to be subsumed into one of the major parties because one of the major parties is willing to compromise on a couple things in order to take over their voting block. And so because in the United States we have a first-past-the-post election system, it is nearly impossible for a third party to ever gain to become viable enough to win 50% because long before that, I mean, even at 5 or 10%, both major parties, I mean, because we've got, like when you win a presidential election, you win at what, 52 to 48, right? So if you have a third party that has even 5% loyal support, that's the election right there. That's all you need to win is to bring them into your fold. So all you got to do is compromise on one or two core values, bring them into your fold and win the presidency, and bam, you're back to two parties. So I think it's not going away. We may have the Republicans may go away, the Democrats may go away, but we will always have two in the United States unless we have election reform. Very interesting. Well, well thought out. And I, I agree with you. I, what I should have said is we're going to have the end of the traditional Republican Democratic parties as they kind of have you know existed the last ten years. But I, I think that's a compelling case. I think you're right. I can see. Yeah, I can see that happening. So I guess, yeah, I'll come over to your side, just like that independent party would have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, so there's actually a way to fix it. Are you interested in the way to fix it? I'm guessing is it that you've got a runoff where you have like, let's say you, you've got 10 parties and then the top three or top four, they go into a runoff election and then the top two. Is that how it would work? That's a expensive and difficult way to do it. Yes, there's actually a very easy way to do it that doesn't increase the cost of elections at all. It's called instant runoff voting or the alternative vote. And what that is, is that instead of just going into the ballot box and you vote for your preferred candidate, what you do is you rank the candidates. So you might go in there and rank candidate number one, but if they don't win, I want my vote to slide over to candidate two. And so that allows somebody, you know, party A to get 40%, party B to get 20%, and party C to get 40%. But then the small independent party, when they don't win, their votes still slide over to the voters' second choices. So it prevents their party from being subsumed entirely, and it allows the third party to build some momentum uh, before eventually it flips, and you've got the major parties people ranking the independent party one and their traditional party two. 
it allows voters to move between party. They don't have to depart their current party to say, yeah, I support these independent guys as a better version. So it's called instant runoff voting. And so the only change we'd have to make to allow third parties in America would be to switch from winner take all to instant runoff voting. And that would be all you need to do. There's a group called the Electoral Reform Society that talks lots and lots about this. And there's a think tank and everything that you can Google if you'd like to know more. Wow, I love it. Yeah, but then you'd still have to rank Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump one or two. It'd still be tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. That's really interesting. All right. So the final one that we've got, things that will be disappearing. This is kind of what I put in here. I'm going to preface this by saying I think this is something that's probably, when it does come, it's probably 25 years out. I don't think we're quite ready for it. But I think the building blocks and the foundation are there for it. And that is what's going away, at least, is nationality based solely on your birth location. And it's interesting, like in the history of the world, it's born in America, you're American. If you're born in in France, you're French. And I think today, capital is getting so much easier to move around. Talent and human capital, our skills with so much being done online is getting so easy to move around. Even physically, it's, I mean, you can get around the world in, you know, in 30 hours, more or less. Why is it that where you're born, you're locked into that. It's so difficult to move around, especially when your country of origin, their philosophies and the systems they have in place have such a massive impact on on your life. So I think it'll be interesting. You're starting to see countries, some in the, in the Caribbean, I think it's Nevis, you know, offering citizenship with some economic, you know, if you're able to buy your citizenship, also able to see other countries like, you know, Singapore, for example, offering incentives to move there and for citizenship, things like that. And I think we're going to start seeing over the next couple of decades, more and more countries realizing, hey, you know, if we offer citizenship and we set up a country, set up certain things that favor an open business climate, that, that favor what's important to people that we want to come, we can really foster a population that is going to be very advantageous for the long, you know, long-term health of our country. So a little tricky. You got to, I mean, you either have to A, start a new country, which is tough right now. <laughs> Not a lot of free land that's, you know, up for grabs unless you go to Antarctica and that's still probably getting some earmarks on it. Or you've got to change an existing country. But I don't know. It'll be interesting. I would be surprised if we didn't see more of this in the in the coming decades. So are you talking about actually moving people or are you talking about sort of non-resident citizens? I think both. I think you could do both. It depends on it. Obviously, non-resident citizens is a little easier to start with. But ultimately, I think people moving to a place because they like the policies of the government, because they meet certain guidelines, because the government's making it attractive for them to live there. Yeah, I, I think both. Yeah, I think this tracks very interestingly with the prediction of widespread virtual reality, because there are certain things, you know, when you talk just about nations and, and human psyches, there are so many things that are entrenched, you know, physical proximity. Do they look like me or not? Yeah. You know, all of these types of things that make nations right and, and contribute to racism and nationalism and xenophobia and all these things that we have and have had forever. But with the advent of virtual reality, that begins to strip all of those things away. Physical proximity doesn't matter anymore. Physical appearance doesn't matter anymore. So you can have groups of people who coalesce based purely on their value systems, which is what I think you're talking about. It'll be very interesting. There's a a book called Ready Player One that explores this, where basically everybody's jacked into the matrix all the time, and they've formed, all of the people have formed sort of digital alliances and countries inside of the matrix in the book. That's a great book if you are interested in this type of thing. I think it's possible. I think this one's a much slower grind 
just because it depends so much of it is physical proximity. I mean, you still got to jack into the matrix from somewhere and, you know, you need electricity and you need to own the land that you're sitting on and you need to put food in your face and, you know, you still have to be physically present. And I think that, I don't think the concept of, you know, nations based on where you were born and where you live is going away, but I think you may end up with this sort of parallel layer of call it guilds or call it groups or whatever you may want to call it that exists virtually on the internet that people identify with in the same way that, you know, people identify with what college they went to as much as, you know, being American, that type of thing. Yeah. And I declarify, I don't think that we're going to have your citizenship based on birth disappear anytime soon, but I think it's going to become more easier. It's going to become easier and easier in the coming decades to be able to potentially opt out of citizenship or be able to get an additional second citizenship based on some of these criteria. And it's interesting you tied into virtual reality because it does have some pretty, you know, have you read Atlas Shrugged? Not all the way through. That thing's a brick. It is it's brutal. For people who have read it, like it's one of the things at the end is they ultimately, if you don't want to spoil alert, close your, you know, you might want to turn me off here, but <laughs> but at the end of the book, they pretty much create this utopian entrepreneurial world. And where only people who are, you know, willing to be, you know, responsible for their own things and are high output producing people, more or less, live in this little secluded valley. And on one hand, I mean, that sounds pretty elitist, and I think it is. And I wouldn't want to necessarily even be want to be a part of a world like that. I think it's got some pretty awful social implications and implications for empathy for other people. But I think that's something we're going to be forced, that's going to happen more and more in the road as it's easier to move around and as it's, you know, the potential for being able to engage with other countries and become assistants there maybe might be easier. So yeah, not all good things. I think it'd be interesting. And I think it could be positively, you know, potentially good. But the last thing you want to do is get into a, you know, creating more or less, you know, countries based around eugenics, maybe not just for genetics per se, but for other attributes. It's kind of scary too. So yeah, it might go that, but you know, to take a, put a less polarizing spin on it, imagine the Valley was just full of people who were interested in art or, you know, were cycling enthusiasts or whatever it might be. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to break on economic lines. So, Bill, one of the reasons I was a little hesitant to play devil's advocate earlier was I actually do think the financial industry is going to see a a lot of contraction. Like you mentioned in Charlotte over the next, you know, 10 years specifically, I think the one that immediately comes to mind is traditional financial advisors. I think with, I mean, just based on their track record of you know, paying somebody to manage your funds versus index funds. And with all the robo-advisors coming up, I think that's going to be a harder and harder sell in the future. Banks, like you said, banks are shrinking quite a bit. You're getting a lot that's automated. And heck, I hate going to banks. Anytime I go to a bank, even a bank that I like, I got to walk up, I got to fill out a deposit slip. Drives me crazy that the tellers don't fill those out for you or they just can do it for you. But anyway, I think our generation, a lot of other generations just hate going into banks. So for a lot of reasons, I think we're going to see a huge contraction in the financial services industry. And a lot of those positions just are not going to be around in 10 years. Yeah. I think you're right in that the financial services industry will change dramatically. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, particular private wealth advisors, paying somebody to manage your money, all that's going away with, you know, the advent of Betterment and Wealthfront and all these, you know, and Charles Schwab intelligent portfolios and all, you know, all these robo advisors, you know, because it is better for your average investor to index for the long term and not mess with it. So this is really active versus passive management debate, which I won't get into whether active or passive is better because that's not really the futurist discussion. <laughs> what I'm saying, though, is I think 
those jobs, while some of them will go away, a large portion of them will not go away. Because I think what people underestimate about the role of financial advisor is how much of it is salesman and confidant and how little of it is actually placing the trades. And so I still think like an algorithm can't take you out to a steak dinner, except in virtual reality, right? Um, But... I I don't think an algorithm is going, you know, people are going to rely just on an algorithm. You're still going to need the quote unquote relationship manager, you know, somebody that convinces you to invest with his algorithm, right? Somebody that answers your question, somebody that puts you in the right algorithm necessarily. It's just, we're just rehashing the same thing, same things over and over, right? You know, the right fund, the right algorithm. I think there's going to be a need for financial advisors and financial handholders always. I think they may become more salesmen trying to vacuum up as many assets as possible and put them in their algorithm. But I don't necessarily think the function is going away. I don't think it's going to disappear, but I think it's going to definitely be hit harder, especially as people get older. I feel like the younger you are, the more comfortable you are transacting financially online, the more comfortable you are putting you know, a big chunk of money, i.e. your retirement to your IRA or something into one of these accounts. I mean, you look at Wealthfront and yeah, the majority of people there are people probably not necessarily in the Valley, in the Silicon Valley, but people that are young, that are very tech savvy. And I think that's something that, you know, yeah, you're not going to have your 60 year old mother probably, or someone who's 60 or 70, they may be less likely to be in that. But I think, I think that's going to be something where, yeah, I agree with you. They'll be there for the long term in some capacity for people who want that human touch for it. But I think it's going to be a consistent decline over you know over the coming years at least at least on the financial advisor side and there's definitely cases to be made for very advanced wealth management and they're really good financial advisors they are really good estate planners there's a lot of things that are very valuable but bill you and i both know like being from that industry there's also a lot of people in that industry or at least some people in that industry who to be very frank, are probably not qualified to be telling you what to do with you know three hundred thousand dollars. So I think as people get more comfortable with with algorithms doing it, given you know you also have some people mixed in that pool, then I think that's just going to be I don't know a recipe for seeing a lot of those jobs go away. Yeah, and I think there are other functions of banks that are changing dramatically too. You know, we on purpose left cryptocurrency out of this conversation, but obviously that is is something that that's happening or may be happening over the next couple of years. I mean, you also have things like, you know, traditional role of banks is to lend money to people, obviously, right? But you see the rise of all of these things, you know, alternative funding sources, not only just things like on deck capital and cabbage, but things like I think it's called able where people are actually lending to other people directly, because you have all this capital in people's bank accounts, and they can lend to each other. And it turns out the default rates are actually a lot lower when their people are borrowing from their friends. And so if the internet can unlock all of the capital in all of the bank accounts in the world as to logistically provide loans for small business. That's interesting slash potentially scary if you're a big bank. Agreed. Into kind of just pieces of news, a little bit offshoots, but what do you think of Lending Club really having issues recently? And also, have you seen the price of Bitcoin? It's up to like $600 again. Bitcoin is up that high. I'm, I think like you, pretty anti-Bitcoin. I am finally back in the black on my Bitcoin investment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I bought it like 580. And to be, I think I've talked about it, so I won't talk about it much, but I bought Bitcoin, bought like five Bitcoin or something as more or less a lottery ticket, thinking that 90% chance these things go to zero or are not relevant in any meaningful way with a 10% chance that they completely revolutionize the world economy and, and how we use money. So. Interesting. Yeah, I own one Bitcoin. I own a single Bitcoin, more just for fun as an experiment. 
I'm trying not to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I am pro cryptocurrency. I think Bitcoin as an implementation is flawed because it has dramatic built in inflate deflation. Rather, there are only so many Bitcoins that can mathematically be created and it just bakes in huge deflation, which is economically crushing and just is a horrible feature of a currency. You would never build in dramatic deflation into a currency. Bitcoin, because of that, I think is doomed as, as the cryptocurrency. I think the concept of the blockchain and cryptocurrency is here to stay. But I think Bitcoin as an implementation is deeply flawed. Yeah. And there's a new one. Is it Arethium? Is that how you pronounce that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do not know what you're talking about. No. Totally going off the cuff. I'm prepared here. Arethium, close to that. I'll update it in the show notes for the actual one. But very interesting. It's a currency, but it's getting more and more traction in the cryptocurrency space. And it, it's, it was designed less to be a currency and more to be to leverage the strengths of the blockchain to be able to enable smart contracts to really make it easy for people to use the technology and even piggyback off the technology to build their own apps. Almost like creating an API for Bitcoin that didn't care about the currency, but made it possible to create contracts, smart contracts that you could set into place and just ran, which is kind of what a lot of people got excited about with Bitcoin in terms of the technology underneath it, but they created their own currency that really was optimized for that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's the real killer app for the blockchain and cryptocurrency is not necessarily replacing the dollar, but as a means to transfer assets verifiably and know that they haven't been copied to actually, you know, I can give you a Bitcoin, right? And I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. The same cannot be said for a JPEG file. I mean, that's the strength of cryptocurrency in the blockchain is that I can send you a file and I don't have it anymore which enables kind of single-use copies of things. Bill, you're good, man. You even me out a little bit. I tend to be a worst-case scenario guy. When we did the Amazon episode, the end, you were like, dude, yeah, I mean, that's pretty severe negative opinions there. Same thing for this. I like you bring it back to the middle a little bit better and temper my uh, worst-case scenario tendencies. You know, I just try to think of like, you know, what is like stuff like this. People go, oh, it'll be really bad if this happens or it'll be really good if this happens. I tend to look at things as this is probably going to happen. Yeah. How can we cope with it? Like, how is it? It's unlikely, you know, so far the world hasn't exploded, right? For millions of years. So if you think that the past predicts the future, the world's probably not going to end anytime soon. So we're going to end up at some sort of equilibrium. So these things are going to happen if we end up with widespread VR, or if we end up, you know, all the things we've talked about, if we end up with the humans don't work at all, if we end up with, you know, all of these types of things that have changed. If that all happens, okay, so it happens. Like, how do we cope with that? You know, what does the new society look like in a world where people use virtual reality 12 hours a day? You know, it's not a good or bad. It just is, you know, like, it's just a thing. Like, as to borrow a phrase from Mark Andreessen, like, did you get really mad at your new toaster? Like, it's not... It's not a revolution. It's just a thing. It's a tool. It's just a thing that is. Yeah. And it's interesting too to think through predictions from the past. I mean, you think about there's a really interesting Planet Money episode where they were talking about, I, I think it was, it was one of the famous economists. I think it was Keynes where his prediction, I could be wrong. One of those economists, their prediction for the year, like, you know, 2000 ish was that because of the gains in productivity, because they were advancing so quickly, humans would work like 10 hours a day, right? Like we would just 10 hours a week, rather, we'd almost work no work at all and leisure. We would just be in these wonderful lives of leisure. Well, he got the productivity part right, 
But in terms of how much we work, we work, you know, more than we used to. And it's interesting too, a lot of times when you look at your predictions for the future, you always, it's easy to spot the potential bad, but a lot of times you maybe don't get enough credit or don't think through the, the positive things that can come out as well. I think that's probably something that's been, you know, pretty common in most predictions for the future. And you think about that prediction about, you know, everybody only works 10 hours a week. They thought everybody would work less. Well, maybe that prediction isn't actually that far off. But what they got wrong was that the work would be evenly distributed, that everybody would work less. And in fact, a smaller subset of people work the same amount and a large portion of people are unemployable. Yeah. So maybe the prediction is at its core is right at its core, but it's not, you know, the nuance is wrong. And Keynes had no idea that AI would, would play into that. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Bill, I love it. I love it. We'll have to check back in in, you know, 20, 25 years. I'm sure we'll be doing the podcast. We'll be doing the podcast in virtual reality in 20 years. Oh, I love it. We'll be doing it in virtual reality with making no money, being diagnosed by uh, robot doctors with the, I'm going to call it the sofa party as the main candidate for president, which should be interesting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bill, it's been fun, man. Thanks for batting these ideas around. Yep. No problem. Want to connect with and learn from other proven e-commerce entrepreneurs? Join us in the e-commerce fuel private community. It's our tight-knit vetted group for store owners with at least a quarter million dollars in annual sales. You can learn more and apply for membership at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much to our podcast producer, Laura Serena, for all of her hard work in making this show possible. And to you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. That'll do it for this week, but looking forward to seeing you again next Friday. 